Okay, we're back with uh, Civil Action, Brian Kabatek, Sean Karnikian, again on lockdown. Um, Still on lockdown, recording from remote locations, so apologies if you hear a dog or, or spouses or something in the background. They'll um, all be Sean's, though, because I'm in a quiet, secure location in a bunker 3,000 feet under the earth. Undisclosed location. Uh, but this is Civil Action. Uh, we're the podcast that goes through new cases that come down that affect the plaintiff's bar. And it truly is like mini law school. And it's mini law school because all of the cases we're covering today involve civil procedure. Um, we're, both of us are just wonky enough to find them really interesting, four really interesting cases about civil procedure. Uh, and I think that the reason I always think that these cases are important is because some of the other cases we cover are factually based or may be um, important in a particular niche, but these civil procedure little traps can affect any of our practices at any time. So we're glad you're with us. Tell them where they can find us, Sean, and then describe a little bit about the cases we're going to cover today. Yeah, they can find us online at kbklawyers.com, and you can read about our seminars and other stuff we're doing, and we're, we're, we have these all online and other materials online, and we hope you find them practical. So speaking of practical information, today we're going to talk about four very practical cases. The first one deals with personal jurisdiction and kind of back to basics on whether or not you can adjudicate a dispute in California. Then we're going to deal with sex abuse, childhood sexual abuse cases, statute of limitations, and changes in the law. Um, next, we're going to read about a uh, how you can appeal or not appeal a judgment versus a statement of decision and, and whether or not you can appeal a statement of decision. And lastly, we're going to talk about relief under 473B and the limitations of the relief that's allowed under that code section. So the first case we're going to cover today is Halyard Health versus Kimberly Clark Corporation. This is out of the second DCA in Los Angeles. Um, and this case is an interesting for a number of reasons, not the least of which it involves an underlying case that was tried by Mike, Michael Avenatti before apparently he went to jail. Yeah. And uh, this involved a very high profile case that he tried, not for Stormy Daniels, but involving Kimberly Clark. Um, I think they were some kind of surgical gown. Isn't that right, Sean? Yeah, it arose out of actually, it's a, it's a super interesting background without getting into it, but it arises out of gowns that Kimberly Clark, which is a big healthcare product manufacturer that makes everything from household Kleenexes to surgical equipment and surgical gowns. But apparently they represented these gowns to be impermeable, protecting against infectious diseases such as Ebola, but it turns out they weren't. So Kimberly Clark got hit with a $350 million punitive damages award, which Brian... Before we actually get to Kimberly Clark, shouldn't we talk about the fact that Halyard was the spinoff from Kimberly Clark's specific division that made these these gowns? Yeah, that's right. Halyard was a spinoff. And um, the agreement between Halyard and Kimberly Clark at the time that it got spun off specifically provided that Halyard would indemnify um, Kimberly Clark for various uh, in liability for various actions, including specifically this underlying lawsuit for the um, defective gowns. Originally so, resulted in a three hundred and fifty million dollar punitive damage award, and and that was quickly cut down to about twenty million dollars. And I understand that at least as of the date of this recording, it's still on appeal in the Ninth Circuit. It was a Central District of California case that went to trial and went to verdict um, several years ago. And so this case that we're talking about today, Halyard versus Kimberly Clark, was a deck relief action that was filed in L.A. Superior Court 
to determine the obligation of who was going to pay those punitive damages. Right. And it, and it was very important to Halyard and Kimberly Clark um, to find out whether or not this is going to be decided under California law, because California law does not allow for indemnity for punitive damages. So Halyard obviously didn't want to be on the hook for the punitive damages award. Uh, so they were arguing that this should be decided under California law. And Kimberly Clark, of course, wanted to avoid that liability. So they were arguing that California does not have personal jurisdiction over this. So let's talk about the basics of personal jurisdiction. What type of personal jurisdiction is there? Are there, Brian? Well, the first thing about I want to say about that is that when long ago when I was in law school, don't make any jokes, Sean, I was taught that if you ever really want to understand the majority opinion in a decision, go to the dissent because the dissent will dissect it. And this case is a 2-1 decision. Um, and the, the justice that wrote the majority, Justice Baker, is extremely smart. Uh, there was a dissent written by Justice Rubin, who's also extremely smart, and also the presiding justice of that division. And so the first thing we look at is his dissent to understand what really the majority is saying. So the first thing you have to understand is that there's two types of jurisdiction. And I will point this out, um, that very little has changed in the way of personal jurisdiction, decisional authority from the United States Supreme Court since the time even I graduated law school. And that was a long time ago. No, but all kidding aside, Brian and I talked about this, and it was same cases, International Shoe and, and a lot of the same. Burger same King, cases. correct, right? Uh, there was a case that came down in 2017, last time the Supreme Court, and the first time in a long time they considered uh, jurisdictional, personal jurisdictional issues. And that was Bristol-Myers Squibb versus Superior Court. It came out of California. And it really just held that in mass tort actions, for example, there had to be a nexus between the plaintiff and the actual jurisdiction. Um, and just saying that they sold the product here wasn't enough if the plaintiff wasn't from California. But let's put that to the side and let's focus on the issue here. The first thing that we know is the, maj the majority and the dissent both agree this is not a general jurisdiction case. General jurisdiction is what, John? Um, if, if the uh, situs of the defendant is in California. If the defendant's in California, there's general jurisdiction there. And what this case really came down to on considering whether or not there's specific jurisdiction is whether the dispute here arose out of the sale of the gowns or whether it arose out of the distribution agreement. And uh, Bristol-Meyer was arguing it's the distribution agreement because that puts them in Delaware court and out of California and arising out of the sale in California. Halyard was arguing for that because it keeps them in California, whereas Shant said, probably no indemnity of punitive damages. Yeah. So there's three prongs that the court looks at when determining uh, whether there's specific uh, personal jurisdiction in a state. And you look at the first one is whether or not the company availed itself to benefits in California. And that's, that's not really in dispute here. The second one, which is kind of, that's what, that's the one that this is all about is whether the action arises out of or relates to the defendant's contacts with the forum. And then the last one is the reasonableness of exercising jurisdiction or whether or not that would be proper. To whether it comports with fair play and substantial justice. That's, that's the standard, right? So what what does the majority basically hold? Uh, the majority holds that since the the action here doesn't arise out of the contact with the forum, uh, the underlying action here, then then there, there's no there's no specific personal jurisdiction over them. 
That's what it looks at. It looks yeah, at it's the Kimberly Clark sale in California are not specifically connected to the specific claim in this lawsuit, namely whether or not the distribution agreements indemnity obligations are forcible. So they focused on the indemnity agreement and, and the distribution agreement, not the sales itself. And it's the sales, of course, which led to um, the the decision. So then the dissent looks at it and says, look, I also agree it's these three prongs. And the first prong is really not disputed that um, Kimberly-Clark absolutely prevailed itself of California because it sold millions of gowns, defective gowns, millions of dollars at least of defective gowns in California. And then the the dissent says, no, this does arise out of the sale, not the distribution agreement. So ultimately, it arises, according to the majority, out of the distribution agreement. The distribution agreement wasn't a California agreement. Um, and if they had wanted to avail themselves of the jurisdiction of California for the distribution agreement, they would have said so, but they didn't. So they kicked this case to Delaware. Uh, and according to the, the, the dissent, it should have stayed in California. Did I get that yeah. right, Sean? That's right. And the dissent even cites the, the Delaware court in, in staying because it was also filed in Delaware, a similar action, which got stayed. But the uh, Delaware court made a comment when it stated and and it said that, you know, the Delaware court thought that this belongs in California. And they even said that it was certainly foreseeable that Halyard would have to indemnify Kimberly Clark for events occurring in California. And therefore, Kimberly Clark purposely availed itself into uh, to California's jurisdiction. So, you know, so this is a case we could talk about and talk about. I mean, it, it is fascinating issues. Granted, it doesn't come up all the time, but I think it's largely misunderstood when you're suing these large multinational corporations and where you consume, where you can't sue them, and it's tricky. Um, so let's go on to the next case. Is that okay? Next case. Okay. Safe, Safe Chuck versus MJJ Production. Um, and that comes out of the Second uh, District Court of Appeal, and uh, MJJ stands for Michael Jackson. Um this Actually, involves- it, stands for, it stands for his his loan out company, yeah. which is the company which would basically um, he was using as as for lack of a better term, sort of a front. It was his loan out corporation where it would furnish his services. So if he was you know hired to do something, it would be paid through the, the loan out corporation MJJ. And uh, because Michael Jackson sadly is dead. Um, I, I think it's important to note that they couldn't sue him so they because of certain rules that are well beyond my knowledge about probate and things like that. They had to sue the corporation. Right. And there is a California law, CCP Section 340.1, that allows you to uh, claim liability uh, for childhood sexual assault against a third-party non-perpetrator if that third party owed a duty of care to the victim. And... and, and- it's a, it's 340.1 is a revival of a statute of limitations because there's no doubt that at the time under the statute in California, um, these two now adults over 30 could have sued um, the Michael Jackson for sexual abuse if they'd have been brought within two years of the age of raging majority or maybe at the time it was one year because the statute of limitations changed. Yeah, but yeah. they didn't. So, and under under the old law, um, there's been recent changes to 340.1. Uh, the claim would have to be brought by the victim's 26th birthday, unless there's some very there's some very limited narrow exceptions, such as uh, if the entity knew or should have known that this is happening, or there's a risk of this happening. Um, 
So here you have Wade Robson and uh, James Savechuck that bring these lawsuits. Wade Robson was 30 at the time that he brought the lawsuit, and uh, Savechuck was 36 at the time he brought the lawsuit. Robson's- and all of these lawsuits were brought before the statute was amended, effective January 1st, uh, 2020. So just, just recently the statute was amended. Yes, um, uh, by AB 218, which did a great job of expanding the statute, and it's something that we've needed for a long time, uh, which allows now for the claim to be brought by the victim's 40th birthday and keeps that exception in there as well, where you can file it beyond the 40th birthday if the third-party entity knew or should have known that this might be happening. So Robson's case got thrown out on MSJ before the passage of the statute, Safe Chuck's case got thrown out on demur before it passed through the statute. But then this court looked at it and said, the appeal is still pending. The statute revives, uh, the amendment to the statute revives their uh, ability to bring the claims. So they both brought it before they were 40. So they get to proceed with their action. Interestingly, uh, I've worked on these statutes in legislature, not just this, but on other revival statutes and statute of limitations. And it is not a constitutional problem to um, revive a statute of limitations. So that wasn't even really the issue here. The issue in this case was when when is it applicable to actions that were filed before January 1st, 2020? And here they said, well, it's applicable because the underlying action by these two men was not final. It was still pending on appeal between the time the court had thrown the cases out for violating the statute of limitations, the revival, and the appeal actually being considered. And that's really, because it hadn't been final, um, they were able to avail themselves of the revival of the statute of limitations because they filed their lawsuits before their 40th birthday. Yeah. So lesson here is you come across these types of cases and you think, oh, well, that was a long time ago. Uh, take a second look. There's there's changes to the law and this is an important change. And these are a very vulnerable group of the population that needs representation. So don't don't immediately dismiss these types of cases. And our next case is Warwick, California Corp versus Applied Underwriters, Inc. And this is um, this involves a some kind of a worker's compensation insurance, but it's not an insurance case. As Sean said at the top of the uh, of the program here, we were talking about this case from the decision about whether a statement of decision is appealable on its own without something more. But just by way of the facts, um, it appears that, that Warwick California Corporation, which uh, operates certain hotels, had purchased... Um, workers' compensation insurance from uh, Applied. And Applied, apparently five days after the insurance went into effect, they presented Warwick with a reinsurance participation agreement, which apparently changed the cost of the coverage substantially. And it was an adhesion contract. It was a take it or leave it. Um, And so then litigation ensued, litigation involving uh, California entities as well as other entities not located in California. Right. And this trial that occurred in uh, the California court was limited specifically. The the statement of decision that was ultimately issued by the trial court said that this trial is limited to Warwick's California entities only. Um, so it, it didn't affect everything. But the statement of decision also said that the trial court can't determine um, how to allocate the damages or apportionment between California and non-California Warwick entities. So ultimately, it didn't make a final ruling. It didn't. It didn't issue a judgment. Is the point here? And 
Um, it issued what's called a statement of decision. Statements of decision after a trial um, are fairly typical, particularly a bench trial. It's fairly typical. And uh, one side usually needs to request it. A lot of times the judge will say, well, I expect you want a statement of decision. But um, the, the trial court here issued a statement of decision. And um, the statement of decision basically went into all the reasons why uh, they were making the decision. And I guess at the end of the day, although they don't really go into much of the details, at the end of the day, Applied was unhappy with the statement of decision. Yeah, and, and Applied filed an appeal. And then the only issue that the Court of Appeal looks at is whether or not they can, whether or not that statement of decision is an appealable order. And the answer is an unequivocal no, it's not an appealable order. It's not a judgment that can be entered. Uh, it's not a judgment that can be enforced. It acknowledge, the Court of Appeal acknowledges that uh, California Rule of Court 3.1591 specifically allows for a statement of decisions to be issued, and it can be a precursor to a judgment. But here, no judgment was ever entered, so it's it can't properly be on appeal. It's not something that can be decided. By the yeah, court. in fact, using that rule of court, it says the court is not allowed to prepare any proposed judgment until all other issues are tried and resolved. So you can have interlocutory trials on issues. The court issues a statement of decision, but then under what's called the one judgment rule, which is pretty well known in California, um, you can't issue a final judgment until the, uh, the, the matter is final and all of those issues have been decided. And here, not all of those issues have been decided. So the first thing we learn from this case is that a statement of decision is not a final judgment. But then the court goes on to say, look, you can only appeal judgments. You can't appeal other issues. Now, there's, there's corollary issues like, for example, a denial of a petition to arbitrate is directly appealable. Denial of class certification is directly appealable. But we're not dealing with those. We're just dealing with what kind yeah, of... Yeah, those are like statutorily enumerated. Those are listed in statute. So I think the two lessons here, Brian, I, I think are... One, the easy one, st statement of decision is not an appealable order or it's not a judgment. But but the second one is, hey, you can ask a court to issue a statement of decision. Defendants will often argue, well, there's another issue that's on, you know, that's being decided in another court, Your Honor. So we need to stay it. And, hey, maybe a creative argument is, well, Your Honor, courts have the authority to hear this limited issue and issue a statement of decision. There's nothing wrong with that just because they can't enter a judgment. So keep that in mind. Right. They can issue statements of decision and sometimes statements of decisions can have some force and effect if courts issue some sort of an order um, complying with that statement of decision on an interlocutory basis. But whether or not that becomes appealable is, is beyond the, the reach of this case. The final issue in this case is, and we see this a lot, is that um, they the applied basically came out and said, okay, if you don't buy that it's a final judgment, at least agree that and treat it like a writ petition, grant the writ petition, and um, consider it that way. And the Court of Appeals said, well, you're right, we could, but we won't. So as we know, writs are discretionary. And the court stated the rule that there has to be, you know, super important reasons why we should exercise jurisdiction. Court of Appeal is backed up in cases that it hears. It can't grant every writ. In fact, it denies the vast majority of them, right? Yeah. So ultimately, they don't hear that issue, and that's it. They, they don't decide it. Um, that's it. That's so that's not it. We have one more case. 
we have one more case. That's not it for the podcast. You get to still hear us for a few more minutes. The next case is Cheyenne versus Spine Care and Orthopedic Physicians. And this also comes from the second VCA, uh, starts out in the Los Angeles Superior Court. This involves an interpleader action um, by the lawyer, Kmar Shayan, who settled his client's personal injury case with State Farm for like $30,000, uh, its policy limits. And there was around $19,000 that remained after he took out his own contingency fee. And there were competing claims by different lien holders, like treaters and chiropractors and who knows what, uh, claiming over $93,000 in these types of, uh, of liens. Um, Cheyenne rep- represented himself and a trial occurred, an interpleader trial occurred. Um, and that's something you do when there's a dispute over who gets a certain amount of money. And Let me correct you a little bit, Sean, just so we're clear on this. Cheyenne wasn't making a claim for himself. He was representing his client who was making a claim to that remaining almost $20,000 that left behind from the $30,000. So he had already been paid his fees and he's representing his client who's competing with these, these skill providers, medical care skill providers for the balance of the, the $20,000 or so. That's right. Yeah. He's not a, he's not a, a party that's disputing any part of, part of his recovery here. It's just, he's trying to figure out who gets what in this, whether it's his client and the competing liens over there. So ultimately there's a trial on it and the court makes a decision and the two of the parties to the interpleader, spine care and orthopedic physicians, and then CNC factoring solutions had noticed about the trial, but didn't show up. And the court proceeded in their absence, heard the evidence and ordered a judgment that was adverse to uh, CNC and spine care, the lien holders here. Now, uh, CNC and Spine Care hired new counsel, and they tried to vacate the judgment uh, and made an argument under 473B. CCP 473B, should we talk about you know, what the bounds are and the requirements are there, Brian? Well, yeah. You know, let's just generally talk first that 473 is the statute that allows people to um, uh, basically escape a bad result as a result of their own negligence, but it, but it has two really two sections, right? Yeah, four seventy three B, which is called the mandatory relief section, and four seventy three C, which is more uh, discretionary. Over here, the argument was four seventy three B. We should get relief, but four seventy three B is specific to. A, you have to provide an attorney declaration that says it's my fault, it's because of mistake, inadvertence, negligence, surprise, but it only applies to defaults, default judgments and dismissals. And the issue here is whether or not the court hearing the evidence in a trial and then ordering a judgment on the merits qualifies as a default, default judgment and dismissal. And now, I think this is important to understand here because what the court ultimately says is We're not going to read more into the statute than default judgments and dismissals, okay? And they then point to a quote from Justice Turner, who passed away a few years ago, who was a kind of legendary second DCA judge, um, that said uh, the statute means what it says and says what it means. So they're restricting this to the plain language of the statute, right? Yeah, and and then CNC and and spine care here try to say no, we should be able to analogize to different situations in a situation like this, and the the court of appeal says no, you can't do that. It would be, in fact, this is a quote from uh, Justice Wiley who wrote the opinion that says 
it would be a disservice to embroider this language with uh, freeform extensions to analogous situations. And he says this because he goes on to say something funny, which is the lawyers are pretty good at inventing analogies. So he kind of says, this is a slippery slope. If we allow for these types of analogies, where do we stop? Um, so you can't analogize this situation to a default, default judgment. He then goes on to say everyone benefits from clear, exact, and predictable rules of civil procedure. And wouldn't life be nice if that were true all the time? However, this has got to be, you know, a close call in my mind, because I don't know why I can't read into this. It looks like the lawyer representing these two entities who were making a claim to the money just didn't show up perhaps forgot, just didn't show up at trial. And the way I see this is if 473 is really designed to limit legal malpractice lawsuits and litigation, um, kind of have it handled in, in, in a certain way or a certain manner, isn't there a better way to have handled it here? Perhaps saying we're going to grant the 473, but you're going to have to pay the attorney fees, costs and expenses associated with the lawyer showing up at the first trial, appearing at the first trial, and as opposed to what this decision now leaves open is the likelihood that that first lawyer who represented these entities is going to be sued for malpractice. Yeah, I mean, that would be a good middle ground, Brian. And uh, Justice Wiley makes it clear that the legislature can amend that if that's necessary. So maybe that's something the legislature needs to do um, in terms of this language here. But but let this be a lesson. For, 473B is not yeah, a fault. What's your takeaway? Show up at your trials. <laughs> That's a good rule, right? Show up. Show up at all trials where your clients are on trial. What about hearings? Should you show up at those two? Or court call, but one of the two. Yes, generally, yes. Okay. That's a good rule. We'll leave you with that. You make mistakes, and if you practice long enough, you're going to make a mistake. And that was the whole purpose behind 473. And there's still, you know, there's still the discretionary part of 473. And the plain language of defaults and dismissals, we get it. We understand. Um, so I think that's all we have today, right, Chuck? That is all we have today. Uh, we thank you for tuning in. We hope this is helpful. We appreciate your feedback. Uh, if you have more time now on your hands, if you're sitting around at home watching TV, eating cereal, listening to the podcast, um, you know, we'd love to hear back from you. Um, and check us out online, kbklawyers.com. And uh, stay in touch. Thank you for tuning in.